0: Our Father, we are thankful that you have provided the salvation that you have through the death and the atonement of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that when he ascended into heaven, he received the promise from you and passed it down to us of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. And we ask that the Holy Spirit who coined the New Testament and brought into existence, uh, would continue to unravel its meaning in our hearts in order that we may believe and walk by faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, tonight, uh, we've, we're going to leave what we've been doing for the three weeks, uh, introduction kind of on Islam and its contrast with Christianity. And we're going to move now to preparing to get back into the where we were last spring, which is the church age. However, uh, in order to do that, because what we were working with back then was regeneration, uh, we're going to be developing shortly um, uh, what we will call kind of like a positional truth, that is, what God, how God has structured the church, the possessions of every believer. And one of those... Um, things, of course, is regeneration. Um, however, because regeneration is part and parcel of the whole overall framework, if regeneration is the bestowing of Christ's life in the believer today, at the point of regeneration, then it behooves us to go back to the life of Christ, to see what it is that's being regenerated, what was being conveyed uh, to the church. So that's what we're going to do tonight, and um, just so we run it again through some of the uh, basics uh, to review, going back through the foundation to recall that we. Uh, oh, this doesn't focus very well here. I'm going to have to change that background. I can see that. I can't see the text. Um, Keep in mind that what we're looking at here is a mix of what people would call systematic theology and biblical exegesis, and it's neither one or the other. It's a mixture. And it's the framework that we've been going through for several years. Uh, The important thing to remember is that every great doctrinal area of the Bible can be linked with an event. And the reason why I keep reviewing this and going over it and over it and over it and over it is if you will learn Bible truth this way, you will not forget that it's systematic and interconnected. You can't take a piece of God's Word and isolate it. The moment you do that, you're going to be in trouble because you can start waffling on the meaning of it Um, you lose the protection of that truth there's a whole kind of ramification so you've got to think in terms of the Christian faith as a coherent set of sub-beliefs that's why there are the great creeds in the history of the church it's it's men's attempt to state in an organized way all the truths together let me give an example of where you get in trouble How often have you heard it said maybe you've said it um, well I I really don't get heavy into doctrine or truth, we just believe in Jesus Now on the surface that sounds like a very pious way to go except if I ask you the next question What do you mean believe in Jesus? Which Jesus? The Jesus of the liberalism? The Jesus of the modernist? The Jesus of Jehovah's Witness? Jesus of the Mormons the Jesus of Islam which Jesus and the moment you try to answer my question you'll be driven to have to put content into what you just said and now you're in back into doctrine so you cannot escape this now I understand that in our evangelical circles Uh, for the past 20 or 30 years particularly we've been very sloppy about this one major denomination prides itself on saying we have no creed but Christ which is an inane statement of course you have a creed the very fact that you just said that you had a creed no creed but Christ it's itself a creed so everybody has a creed everybody has a system whether it's chaotically organized or, or really smoothly organized we all have sets of beliefs And so, the framework is not to go through exegetically verse by verse in the Scripture. It's not an approach that would be considered to be systematic theology. What we're trying to do is link events, key events, to Bible truths. And the benefits of this are that, in the New Testament particularly, the authors, knowing as good Jews, their Jewish history, Refer again and again to historical events when they're trying to teach a truth. Think, for example, in Romans, the most theologically systematic epistle in the New Testament. What does Paul do when he has to deal with faith in Romans? go through chapters. It's not in chapter 1, it's not in chapter 2, it's not in chapter 3, it's in what? Chapter 4. And who is it that's the subject of chapter 4? Abraham. So see, it's an event, and he's citing various instances. It's not just the biography of Abraham, it's one or two events in Abraham's life. And so the whole idea of faith in that epistle of Romans, which is centered on justification by faith, the whole content in the imagination and in your thinking is built off of the historic event of Abraham. Now there's another benefit. Uh, to uh, looking at things this way, if you learn from the very get-go that every one of these truths is connected to history, it will coron- it will uh, vaccinate you against a toxin that's at large in the world, which says that I can accept the content of the Bible stories without accepting the historicity of the biblical text. Now, can you? Can you believe in the content of the biblical stories and the lessons of the biblical stories with a straight face and deny the history behind the stories? I don't think so. So, again, linking history with Revelation is what we're trying to do. So, just to review... Remember that whenever you talk about God, man, and nature, you sort of divide the universe up into those three parts. Oh, it's not. Take that back. We're not dividing the universe. We're talking about reality—the creator, creature distinction. Here is God, and then the creation, man, and nature. Now, all that is is the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Where do you get your foundation? Where do you load the imagination with content that protects you when the house is be- starts to be built on top of this foundation? You get it from creation. The act of creation sets up the creator-creature distinction. If you don't have creation and you have this pagan idea that in the beginning was gas and everything came out of this... And the the gods and the matter were intertwined, as in the Babylonian Genesis, for example, and the Semitic corpus of pagan literature, that the gods and the creation are all tied in. So Tiamat, for example, in the Babylonian Genesis, creates the universe, or the universe is created out of her body. The body of the gods uh, provides the source of the universe. Now what happened to the created creature distinction it just dissolved and this is a fundamental distinction and so that's why you have to anchor everything here and that's why creation is so important and then remember we came to the fall and we have evil and suffering and uh, we said well look um, now you've seen it a dozen times up here or a hundred times the evil diagram where does evil come from Only in the Christian faith Only in the Christian faith Do you have a fall Such that before the fall Everything was good And then it was the fall That introduced evil And from the fall To the final judgment You have good and evil Mixed together What does that do? What's the accomplishment of this? What's the benefit Of the biblical view Over against all other views? Well, it is that it brackets evil if you don't have a fall and you don't have judgment I'm sorry there's no way you can defend yourself against the charge that you are a total cynic and a pessimist when it comes to evil you have no platform in which to oppose evil you have no hope to see that evil is one day done away with deny the fall and deny judgment and you've lost it so that's another plank in the platform then we come to the flood And the the, uh, issue there is the doctrine of judgment and salvation. Why do we say those two words together? Think of the flood. Who was judged? Who was saved? Was it the same mechanism that judged and saved? Yes. When God judges, he also saves. When God saves, he also judges. That's an axiom that's true in the Christian life. It's an axiom that's true in the world at large It's an axiom that is true at great events throughout the Bible You cannot have salvation without judgment Another example is what? Judgment salvation What's the second greatest example of judgment salvation in God's word in the Old Testament after the flood? Exodus Jewish Passover Do you have judgment salvation in both those things? In, the, in Exodus what's the judgment judgments on Egypt and deliverance on Israel so you see those elements keep coming together and of course you come down into the interregnum between the first and second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and what do we have we have judgment and salvation how do we have that because at his second advent does Jesus judge yes at the second advent, does Jesus say? Yes. So, you, those, that's a picture that stays with you throughout all Scripture. Then we came to the covenant, which was the last thing prior to the guts of the Old Testament. This was how civilization started. This covenant here is a very, very important covenant. It's one of the many covenants in the Bible. It's not just one covenant. There's many covenants. The covenant is the Noahic covenant which sets up what we call civilization. What was different with this covenant not true in all this time period here. What new thing happened here? What new social institution came into existence historically? Remember? one social back here creation we had marriage we had family what didn't we have that we now have that started the covenant state the the civil authority the right of capital punishment and it's amazing to me that so many Christians have a problem with capital punishment now I grant you there are all kinds of problems of administrating it in practice but what do you do with Genesis 9? What do you do with Romans 13? What is the sword for that was in on the Roman slave? town? What did he do with that? He wasn't cutting his bread and shaving himself with it. Maybe he was shaving himself with it, but the point was it was there not for, it was not only a big Gillette blade that he was carrying around, it was to kill people are you going to say he was wrong to kill people you've got to say that if you do not believe in capital punishment you're against the military if you do not believe in capital punishment you're against the policeman carrying a sidearm what are those weapons for they're lethal weapons how does the civil government get the authority to take life see capital punishment isn't just the trial and the criminal being executed it's any act of death that's rendered by the state Otherwise, the state's murdering So you can't have it both ways. So I have, I have never understood how Christians who profess to read the scriptures have a problem here. You know, I just want to ask them, you know, is Genesis 9 in your Bibles? Is Romans 13 in your Bibles? Now, I know there's, there's problems, and it's true. There's pr- problems of unfair and inequitable ways of administering capital punishment. And those need to be dealt with. But the argument to sustain capital punishment in spite of the difficulties of administrating it is shown in what? What's the grandest mistrial of all history? Who was capitally punished unjustly? The Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father. And the Father was the one who instituted capital punishment. Now, is God omniscient or not? Of course he is. Did the father know when he when he set up capital punishment on earth that his own son would die in the mistrial and the misapplication of capital punishment? Were you surprised by that? No. So what's the problem? God instituted it even though it would be misapplied at times. Now you have to be careful. This is not a carte blanche to be sloppy about it. It's not a carte blanche to just engage in any war we want to. This seems just war and it's unjust war. There's certain legitimate court proceedings to capital punishment, and then there are none. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, so that's all the basis. That's the foundation. We say it's the buried foundation because it's buried literally under our feet in the stratigraphy of the earth, the remains of that civilization. And it's buried psychologically in the soul of man, in a suppressed memory. So it's the buried foundation in that twofold sense. And then, of course, we went into the history of Israel. And we just skipped rapidly through this. I wanted to cover that foundation again because it's so important. We can't get enough uh, review of that. Um, And we, we came to this. And this was the introduction of the next set of events. And we have, we call this the disruptive kingdom. Why do we call it the disruptive kingdom? Because after the fall, who is the God of this world? Satan is the God of this world. So it's his, the kingdom of darkness reigns. So into that kingdom of darkness, God begins to establish a growing, expanding piece of his plan of ultimate salvation. And it's going to be done through a counterculture called the Jews. So we have the call of Abraham, doctrine of election, doctrine of justification, doctrine of faith, come to the exodus, and this is the creation of a nation. Judgment, salvation, we have the expansion of judgment, salvation, and blood atonement. We have Mount Sinai, by the way, if people would please look at the sequence between exodus and Sinai. People aren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved first, and then the law was given to them. See? Watch the sequence. Nobody's saved by the law. It was blasphemous. That's what the Muslims are trying to do. Get saved by the law. Good works, good works, good works. God has to be so impressed with my good works, he's just going to open the door. Because I'm here. Not a bunch of baloney. So, judgment, salvation, and then we come to Sinai. And there we have the revelation of God, the inspiration of Scripture. We have the canon, the defined set of texts. Then we come to the conquest and settlement, the one holy war that was authorized in history, which, by the way, never was completed because of the sinfulness of man. But it's a picture of sanctification. The conquest and settlement, all those warlike things, it's a picture of sanctification. The rise and reign of David is the fact that the kingdom must have a leader, and so here you begin to have the first historical inklings of a coming Messiah, because you have a king now. You didn't have a king before David, when then Saul. Then what happened? That was the highlight of the Old Testament, and you had in David's son Solomon, you had the pinnacle of the wisdom what are the, what are the books that Solomon either personally wrote or he was responsible for in the center of the Old Testament we call it the wisdom literature Proverbs Song of Songs Ecclesiastes what characterizes wisdom literature it was, it's, it's the wisdom of about life Skill in living. Does it cover economics? I bet. Does it cover uh, sanitation? Law. Yes, it does. It's an exposition and development of the mosaic law code for the kingdom. Every area of life is contained in this. And what does that mean? In this golden era of Solomon, it's an adumbration of the fact that the kingdom of God is not just religious. This is is a, a major point. It's not just getting saved. The kingdom of God is more than just getting saved. It is getting saved and then expanding and exercising the dominion that God gave Adam. Dominion over what? Over nature. Not in a careless way, but in a developmental way. We make things and tools out of iron ore found in the rock. We grow plants, we develop different botanical species from the seeds that God has given us. We get medicine from the plants. So it's all part of the expansion of the creator making a creation and man learning how to be Lord of creation, little l. So that's the whole point of the golden era. That's the big idea of all the wisdom literature then of course we have failure we have the kingdom divided the kingdom declined the exile and the restoration what's the story here what's the lesson of all this rest of the Old Testament all the chastening all the repentance all the uh, mess ups that were going on the lesson is the kingdom of God cannot come by means of fallen man elementary statement now lest some of you think this is just a trivial thing let me develop this just in in a couple of sentences all this from the kingdom divided in Kings Chronicles all the way to Malachi in the last of the Old Testament that whole section of scripture is one continuous argument that the kingdom of God requires sinlessness and cannot come about physically, politically on the earth without that kind of leadership. And that is why we're premillennial. The kingdom can't come unless you have sinless leadership. And when you do, when the Lord Jesus returns and the saints are resurrected, when you do have that condition met, you will have a kingdom of God on this planet that will be physical, that will be politically visible, but not until. Now, there's a lesson learned here. Remember, we dealt with premillennialism because premillennialism goes back into the first century when there was a Jewish influence on the church. And Jews interpret kingdom as a kingdom. They don't allegorize it. And in the 4th century, you had Augustine and some of the other guys came along with, a, with an allegorical hermeneutic, and they went into what we call amillennialism the idea there's not going to be a kingdom, or the idea that the kingdom is so uh, spiritual and not physical and not political that it could be identified with the church. Here's what happened. What was true of the Roman Catholic Church under the doctrine of amillennialism? what political shape has catholicism always always done what's the relationship of the church and the state that catholicism historically has pushed take it over it's always been dominion politically why because the church is identified with the state the church and the state are allowed to come together under all millennialism. This is why Lutheranism, to cite a Protestant version of it, was incapable of stopping Nazism. Lutheranism couldn't, didn't have a dynamic against it. The people, the Germans, Christians, who opposed hit, hit Nazism, many of whom left and fled, were largely brethren from Germany in the late 30s. And what clued them in was when Hitler started the Third Reich. The idea that this would be this kingdom to come. He said, "Oh, Red flags, there's only one person that can bring in the kingdom to come, and that's the Lord Jesus. So Hitler's claim to bring in the kingdom is a marvelous uh, betrayal of the idea that only the Messiah can bring in that kingdom. So, wherever you have premillennialism, you have the safety net that keeps the church out of the state business. doesn't mean Christians can't participate in the state, but they do so as citizens of the state, not as Christians, per se. So, church and state are kept separate under premillennialism. Okay, now into that, we come now to the passage we want to get into, which is Philippians chapter 2 we we'll uh, first if we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2 because we want to go there first and then we'll get into the, the rest of the text we come now to the Messiah now the Lord Jesus announced through John John was his king making prophet who preceded him the message of John to prepare the way for Jesus was repent for what is at hand What was John the Baptist's message? Repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. The kingdom is at hand. Now the question is, what did John mean when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, he meant that the king was at hand. Now, knowing just what you do real quickly from the New Testament, just collapse all the four Gospels in a moment in a great event here. The king was rejected nationally. Now, he was accepted by many. But nationally and institutionally, he was rejected. Now, did the kingdom come? And that's the dilemma of the church age amillennialists have to believe well, you know, golly the kingdom has to be around here somewhere I'm going to go find it and I guess it must be the church or do we say the kingdom of God was postponed waiting until what condition is fulfilled what did Jesus say as he came through the streets of Jerusalem prior to the cross I will not come until you say What? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Until who says? Who is he talking to? Jews. Until Israel says, blessed is he that comes, Jesus will not come. And that's why a prophetic event will be a national conversion of Israel prior to the coming of the kingdom. And Israel is still at the center of this with much... uh, people like Hitler and Osama Bin Laden can get very agitated over the existence of Israel, but i got news. Israel's going to stay there. Not going to be knocked out with a nuclear weapon. Not going to be taken out militarily. Israel is in the land, and Israel's going to stay in the land, and the temple is going to be rebuilt, much to Arafat's dismay, or his successor. It will be rebuilt without everybody agreeing to it, but there's going to be a temple there so that Jesus can walk into it. Also so that it can be defiled in defiance. The evil has to be shown for what it is. And that's one of the things. The wheat and the tares both grow together. And part of the hatred and the anger uh, toward the Jew toward the church toward Christians is, has got to take place because evil has to show up as a concerted played out mature evil evil has to mature just like the tares and that's why as history marches on there is a progress that's happening the church becomes more robust there's a development theologically, and evil develops theologically. Evil becomes ever more sophisticated. In our day, we're seeing a new dimension to evil. And the new dimension, I think, that we're seeing is globalized evil. Now we're beginning to get a global consciousness, a union, sort of speak, globally between sides. And this is really necessary because if Jesus had come back in 700 A.D., was there a global awareness in 700 A.D.? I doubt it. There has to be first developed an awareness that we're all in this together as a human race. And that's when all that preparatory work will make it. Uh, we will appreciate the coming of Christ. Now, Jesus comes, and we want to look today. There's four events here. We're going to look at only one tonight. There's his birth. And you remember when we went through the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the basis for what we call, theologians call, the hypostatic union. What do we mean by the hypostatic union? Creed of Chalcedon basically says, undiminished deity and true humanity. Notice the adjective. Undiminished deity and true humanity. Not part, Jesus wasn't just a human body and God into all. There was a survey recently said that they surveyed Christians in in Christian colleges. And the kids in Christian college couldn't get it right. They thought that Jesus was God walking around in a body. Excuse me? What does it say in John 1? The word walked around in a body or it became flesh. So we have in one person undiminished deity but we also have true humanity there was an actual human spirit a human soul besides a human body Christians can't get their basic Christology right yet so we have undiminished deity true humanity united in one person forever without confusion why did they add that without confusion on to protect what the creator, creature, distinction it's not erased even in the person of Christ now how do you get that together in one person only because man the creature is made in whose image so it fits together see if there's a separation so big metaphysical separation like some of the liberal theologians say between God and man then Jesus was a schizo he never could have been united in one person the fact that he's united in one person shows you that the creator creature fits together at the point of a human being and that is the Lord Jesus so we have the hypostatic union uh, skipping the life for a moment we'll go on to that in a minute the death, substitutionary blood atonement and the resurrection, the glorification here's what we want to do tonight in the remaining time we want to look at Bible passages having to do with this the life of Christ now there were three doctrines that we identified and linked to the life of Christ we're only going to talk about two tonight because these two give background to regeneration in the New Testament. The three are kenosis, impeccability, and infallibility. We won't talk about infallibility tonight. We're going to talk about two doctrines, kenosis and impeccability. So let's turn first in Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10... What what is asserted about the person of the Lord Jesus insofar as sanctification is concerned? Said another way, what we're asking is, did Jesus need sanctification? You've got to think this one through. This is kind of tricky. Tricky question. The issue is the Lord Jesus Christ... and the issue of sanctification did he need it or did he not let's read Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 this is one of many verses for it was fitting for him who's the him? pronoun refers to which person the trinity be fitting for him for, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, and many sons to perfect the author of their salvation. It looks like the hymn refers to the Father. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many things sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation by means of what? Sufferings. Did Jesus get perfected. We've got to screw our thinking caps on here now. Let's think this one out. If Jesus had to be perfected, what did he get perfected from? Was he sinful? We can't say that. So, now you see, we're introduced to something about sanctification you might not have thought about before. Sanctification, in order to apply to Jesus has got to refer to something other than just sin. Sanctification, we can define many ways, but one way of defining has been over the years, is a growth in loyalty to God, which comes about only by obedience. Boy, that's a gross color. I forget that sense. Um, Growth, loyalty to God Now, how is loyalty to God developed? What does it say in the passage? It's through suffering What suffering? What in particular kind of suffering did Jesus suffer? The cross The greatest suffering in his life What was it, a crisis over him personally? He labored over whether he should obey the Father in that famous passage in Gethsemane when he said, Not whose will? Not my will, but your will be done. Now, was there any sin involved in that? Yet, Jesus had to be tested to that. So, there's a part, and an important thing in sanctification is that it is talking about growth In loyalty, and that appears to happen in our lives by choices that we make. And we are given, in the history of our lifetime, a certain number of choices to make. And depending on how we choose, whether we choose to submit, choose to obey, or whether we choose to disobey and choose not to submit, controls, in the human sense, the scope of our sanctification. Well, you say, but what about sin? Well, sin comes in because we are sinful, so what is our problem besides Jesus? Jesus didn't have that problem. Jesus wasn't encumbered by a sin nature. That didn't make it easier, by the way, for him, which we'll see in a little bit. bit. But we have a sin nature, a flesh, that weighs us down. So it's impossible for us to choose unless God gives us the grace. But when we do choose, we're choosing against a background of sin as well as our original calling in Adam. Because when Adam and Eve were called in the garden, what were they called to do? To subdue, to obey. If they hadn't have fallen, would they still have had to have been sanctified? Yes. No. Yes, because Jesus had to be sanctified. So there's a dimension here in the life of Christ that he had to undergo sanctification, and out of that now comes some tremendous doctrines. So let's go over to uh, on our way over to Philippians. Let's stop at uh, Acts one seven. this is his ascension Acts chapter 1 verse 7 now this is applied to the disciples but the same thing applied to Jesus during his lifetime he said to them it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority what's the point? The point is that when we face trials and choices and pressure not to choose the right way, it is most of the time, or 100% of the time, in a situation where we don't know all the cards. We would like to know what is God doing here? What is God doing there? Why is this happening? Why did that happen to me? And I don't understand this and I don't understand what God's doing in his life. What does, God, what does Acts one 8, 7 direct us to do? Leave it in the Lord's hands. With the confidence that he, he has a plan, whether we know it or not. It is not for you to know the times of the event. There are things that God isn't going to reveal to us. And that's part of the test of sanctification. That's part of the idea that all those events in the Bible that are studied is to develop a confidence in God and the fact that he knows what he's doing, the fact that he has a plan for your life, the fact that everything that happens in your life, everything to the smallest detail, is all under his control. Even though he doesn't share with you all the details of what he's doing. This is an example of Jesus had to walk in this pathway, too, along with us. That's what it meant to have true humanity. Let's um, turn over to uh, Philippians 2 now, because this is a central passage on the doctrine of kenosis. And it summarizes, it's, it's, it's put in a, in a passage of the Bible, is quote, the practical, and yet it's a doctrine that is very, very difficult and deep. And it shows you how Paul mixed when he dealt with practical problems. He didn't go to the nearest psychology text. He went to the heart of God himself and approached it theologically. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, and by the way, look up in verse 1, 2, and 3, and 4 just to get the context. It's a church problem. It's It's a fellowship problem. It's verse 3. It's a conceit problem. It's a selfishness problem. The people not regarding everyone uh, more important than themselves. You know, it's our normal operating uh, behavior. Um, so verse 5 is set in the context of Christians that can't get along with each other. And it says, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus." Now, you can't have the attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus if you don't have a grasp of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So this demands that we understand something about what goes on in Jesus' mind as a human being, It's true humanity. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now it's explained in verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, "Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." That is the doctrine of kenosis. The word, the verb, the main verb, and all that thing is what humbled himself that's the heart of the doctrine of kenosis the question now comes how did Jesus humble himself did he diminish his deity What, how and what sense did Jesus humble himself he was the second person of the trinity so how is this humbling happening Well, we know, if we had time tonight, we won't go, but you remember when I went through this passage, I took you through a series of verses in the Gospels that showed Jesus to be, quote, lacking in knowledge. For example, Jesus would ask people information questions. Now, if he's God and he's omniscient, why do you have to ask people for information? Because he didn't possess the information in his humanity. So, there are those passages. Then there are passages which show that he clearly does have omniscience, this flashes, momentary flashes, where all of a sudden, what did he say? He suddenly knew things, like he says to Nathan, yeah, I know you, Nathan. I saw you sitting over there in a tree. You what? A sudden thing probably took ten seconds to say, and yet suddenly, you know, the guys were, what, what did he say? What was that? Jesus was always doing that kind of stuff. You know, you'd go 98% of the time he look like a normal person. And then there'd be these 2% deals that pop out. And he'd say these things like the guards come up to him. Is he omnipotent or not? It says that he cast out demons not by his omnipotence. By what? When he had to cast out demons, he did it by means of the Holy Spirit. When he talked to his disciples, he said, These don't come out of people except by fasting and prayer. Ooh. Why doesn't he do his omnipotence? When Satan came to him and said, ah, Hey, you can make the, the, the rocks, uh, the bread, the rocks and the bread, he could have in his omnipotence. See what Satan was wanting to do? He Jesus to cheat. Because if he could get Jesus to meet the trials and adversities of life with his deity, He would be disqualified as our Savior. Jesus' trial was to do the Father's will the same way we do it. We have to rely by faith upon the assets that God gives. Jesus had to do the same thing. The only time that he flashed his deity were special cases that the Father allowed him to do that to show who he was but this humbling is what we mean by kenosis and we can summarize the doctrine of kenosis by saying this Jesus humbled himself now, now be careful be careful of these words Jesus humbled himself by giving up the, the, his own right to exercise his attributes he turned that over to the father the Father wanted him to exercise that, fine. If not, no. But on his own, as the second person of the Godhead, in some way, he did not use the implicit authority that came to him as the second person of the Trinity. All the time, he, he almost like a test pilot, he put the filling of the Holy Spirit, he put walking by faith, under fire. Now at Aberdeen Proving Ground, we, we test things. We have torture tracks, truck frames. We run heavy vehicles over this frame and just trying to twist this sucker. We have guns. We put it in mud to see if they'll fire in the mud. We have bullets and fuses that we bang against the concrete to see if they'll go and detonate or not. So we have all these tests is to test whether the thing does as the contractor says it's supposed to do. Now, what, if you can visualize this, it, it, it's helped me visualize this, so maybe this will help some of you. Visualize Jesus as a tester of the Christian way of life. That he put, the, put it through extreme tests. And he was victorious. He walked by faith. He utilized the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of kenosis means he agreed to do that. Now that has ramifications. Now another passage I want to take you to besides Philippians 2 nine, just to show you this is embedded in the text. We're not reading this in. Turn to John 17 a moment high priestly prayer. He makes a comment here that's sort of intriguing in the light of what we've been saying tonight. John 17, verse 5. John 17, 5 says, as Jesus prays to his father in Gethsemane now glorify me with thyself father with the glory that I had with thee before the world was now clearly if he's praying to get glory that he had when he was praying and he didn't have it that's a perfect tense means the actions over in the past it's not true now He's asking to have glory restored to him that he didn't have in Gethsemane. That's part of the kenosis. That's the full manifestation of his deity. It's like a lampshade. He has bright bulb, put a lampshade over it. Visualize that. Another example. Lampshade is is the son of God in humanity, in, in union with humanity and so the bulb doesn't shine except through the lampshade so what he's saying is Father take off the lampshade so I can shine so obviously John 17.5 is talking about a change and it implies that he did not have the glory which he had before the foundation of the world while he was walking around on earth the glory was shielded taken away done away with something but something's changed here So, all of that to apply, make three basic applications of kenosis. And we'll move on to the second doctrine. Number one application kenosis shows the basic virtue is humility before God. It's not courage, it's not love. The basic virtue is humility. Now that's opposite to the world. The earth world is—you got to have pride, got to have self-confidence. No, you have to have Christ confidence, confidence in the Father. And the world despises this because it thinks that it's weakness. Well, that's what they said of the Puritans too. And one of the great unbelieving British historians wrote of the Puritans that everybody laughed at them, but those who ever met them in the halls of debate or on the battlefield stopped laughing. Because people who are humble before God have courage before men. So, basic virtue in the Christian religion, Christian life, is humility before God. doesn't mean... Being a doorman. It means being humble before whatever God has for you. Two. Kenosis teaches subordination to authority. That's a lost lesson today. Go to a supermarket and watch all the brats walk up and down the hall. I mean, kids are wild. And the place where authority is learned is in the home. And if a kid doesn't learn it at home, he's going to learn it outside the hard way. But the point is, God has structured the universe all the way up to the high level of the Trinity based on authority. And when it says Jesus humbled himself before his Father, it meant he accepted the Father's authority. And another point about application number two, which applies to those who, like the modern feminist movement, think that subordination, authority, means inferiority in being. How does the doctrine of the Trinity refute that? Let's think about that. If the Son is subordinate to the first person of the Trinity, you've got subordination. Do you have inferiority of essence that are not? And you remember when we went through that in the notes, I quoted from some evangelical ladies who put this book together, uh, why they were feminists, why feminism was good, and when they hit this passage, and they hit passages like this, they really hit scrambled eggs when they wrote their book, because they couldn't handle the Doctrine of Trinity correctly. And I thought that was very, very interesting that they, because they were so taken up with the world of the idea that if I'm subordinate to somebody in some authority structure, that makes me less of a person than the person I'm under authority to. Well, if that's true, then the Trinity is out the door. So, fatal, fatal theological error there. Third application of the, of, of the Kenosis Doctrine. Actually, there's two points under three here, too. It is the basis of Christ's priesthood to us in Hebrews 4.14. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched or affected by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points touched that we are. Therefore, we have boldness to do what? To come to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a priest who went through this world and got dirt under his feet fingernails. Did Allah do that? Did Jehovah of post-Christian Judaism do that? No. No one has a sympathetic high priest at the high level of deity except the Bible-believing Christian, who when he looks at the second person looks at one who knows what it means to be tired who knows what it means to be hungry who knows what it means to be physically abused now think about it no other religion has one God who walked this earth and felt the things that you feel not one no one has a sympathetic high priest like that. That is absolutely unique to the Christians, Christianity of the Scriptures. Another point under point three about is not only the basis of Christ's priesthood, it's the basis of his judging us. The Father has turned over judgment to the Son. Why has the Father turned over judgment to the Son? So you have a trial by jury of peers. Talk about a a jury that has to be on the peer with the person being accused. So who's the who has who's a judge? At the same time, he's a judge, but he's he's also the jury in the sense here. He he's a peer. We're going to be judged by a peer. Not judged by a God who just stayed in heaven and, and didn't do anything and never walked down here. and We can make an appeal, hey, well, God, you never did this, you never did that, you never did something else. Don't blow smoke in me, baby. I was there. So that's, you see all this doctrine of kenosis is a very important one. Now we want to go quickly to the second one. And that is a difficult one that is reflections on this whole issue that theologians have come up with and it's called the doctrine of impeccability now impeccability make sure I spell this right means without sin everybody agrees that Jesus was sinless here at least all Bible-believing people, parties to the debate. The question is, however, clarifying it. And you remember when we went through this, we had two ways of saying it. Able not to sin and not able to sin. Remember that? You change the order of the words, you got a little meaning change here. You got to think this one. got to screw on the thinking caps again. Was Jesus able not to sin? Clearly he was, because he didn't sin. So, at least we know statement one is correct. Um, Could statement one be said of Adam and Eve? Were they able not to sin? Must have been, or they wouldn't have been genuinely tempted. So, the first statement is less controversial than the second one. The second one is... Little more difficult. The first one is true of true humanity. But the problem is, Jesus, as Son of God, was also undiminished deity. Now, if he's undiminished deity, he's not able to sin. So the problem then is, how could Jesus be tempted if he was impeccably not able to sin? That's a difficult thing. That's something you can chew on for a while. That'll develop meat in the soul. Get the gray matter running. Really is. These are, these are thoughts that are deep and profoundly more important than the latest five-minute commercial or sports results or something. And this is how you build the mentality of your soul, by reflecting on these great truths. They're soul builders not able to sin. Jesus was tempted even though as God he was not able to sin. And you'll remember in the notes there's a diagram that I put in there that um, if you have the notes for me to get the page on page 65 that Brooks Foss Weska who was one of the great exegetes in the 19th century in England? Had a statement. I, I, I built a diagram just to illustrate uh, Bishop Westcott's statement. Westcott said. Uh, up in the first paragraph there, he said, Sympathy with the sinner in this trial does not depend upon the experience of sin, but upon the experience of the strength of temptation to sin, which only, and here's where he dealt with this question, not able to sin. See, the issue is temptation. How can Jesus be a sympathetic priest and deal with this thing? Temptation is not sin. Those are two different words. Was Jesus tempted? How do we know Jesus was tempted? If, you were, if I challenge you, what, where, what passage would you take me to to show that genuinely Jesus was tempted? Satan's solicitations, right? Matthew 4. So, Jesus was tempted by Satan. The Bible says he was tempted by Satan. But temptation isn't sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he was tempted. Now, clearly he was being tempted, and yet as God he was not able to sin. In his humanity he was able not to sin. Well, on this diagram what I've tried to show is because he had a perfect divine nature, the pressure of temptation became more excruciating Him than it ever would for us because we cave before the pressure gets that high. But it's like his humanity is stuck to his deity. So if I tempt his humanity here, and his humanity can't go anywhere because his humanity is in union with his deity, we jack up the pressure. That's what Satan was doing, jacking up the pressure here. Now we cave, we flop. But he couldn't, as it were, couldn't fly because his humanity is united with his deity. So he had to take the full heat. So it's not true that just because he was not able to sin, just because he was God, doesn't mean he couldn't be tempted. And the point here in all this goes back really to reinforce the issue of kenosis the fact that he can be a sympathetic high priest. It also shows that the Lord Jesus Christ had choice and didn't have to sin. Why is that important? Well, have you heard it said that, well, the the evil in the world in the world, because if the evil wasn't in the world, we couldn't have real choice. There's a little bit of sloppiness in that argument. Because God could have made a world of choice, in which there would be temptation external temptation like Jesus and yet have none of those being tempted falling and the proof of it is Jesus now what is the application next week we're going to if you bring the notes we had from last time we're on regeneration we're taking the event machine further on. We're going to talk about Pentecost, what the Holy Spirit's done. The Holy Spirit now puts the life of Christ in us. This all, folks, is part of the life of Christ. It's sinlessness of Jesus Christ. It's the, um, it's the kenosis, the humility, and so forth. And yet we sin. So how do we get together the idea of 1 John that's what we're going to deal with that he who has the seed doesn't sin yet in the very same epistle it talks about brothers sinning so it can't be teaching sinless perfection yet it teaches something here that you have to think about you can't just flop over what does Paul mean when he says in Galatians 2.20 not I but Christ lives in me now how do we handle that one? What do we do with a passage in Romans 7 where he says, So then, it is not I that sins, but sin that's in me. So there's a, there's a thing you have to get together here. On the one hand, the Bible is not teaching sinless perfection. Clearly not. In the very epistle of John is talking about confessing sin. So the Bible's not saying that we don't sin. But the Bible's also saying something about this regeneration thing and the nature that is given to us after Pentecost, after Jesus ascends to heaven, after Jesus gets the promise of the Father, and after Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to earth, then and only then, all of a sudden the Bible starts talking about Christ in us. That's not Old Testament terminology. It never happened in the Old Testament. This is something that's totally post-Old Testament. So we have to come to grips with that. And that's what we're going to move on to. So tonight has been all preparatory to seeing that the Lord Jesus Christ had genuine humanity. He was genuinely tempted. He passed the test. And the tests that he passed are the same tests we go through. That's why he is a sympathetic high priest. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have given us an example in the person of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you did not just stay in heaven, but that you sent your Son to come to planet Earth to experience the heartache, the pain, the fatigue, the conditions that we have to live under in order to be a hope for us that His life dwelling in us through the filling of the Holy Spirit can cope with those very same issues. We thank you now for all these blessings through the person of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, we have a few minutes tonight. I guess we can throw around some questions. Debbie's here to start us. <laughs> Our starter lady. Um, if she doesn't do it, George, we'll think of something. Um, but what I'd like to do is kind of, if we can concentrate on the areas that we've covered as far as the, the overall framework and getting into the Christology, and we'll talk more about the Christian life next week when we get to develop that. Uh, if the statement that uh,
1: The best statement. Then what was Satan, um what was Satan trying to accomplish then with the temptation of Jesus? Oh, what he was trying, he trying didn't to realize that he was not able to
0: at Well, apparently he thought he could do it because Satan, remember, the thing the key mm-hmm. about and that's a good question. The question is Uh, what was Satan trying to do if it's true that Jesus was not able to sin? Um, Why does Satan rebel in the first place if he's trying to be like the Most High? I think what it's a revelation of is two things, really. One is the, the sheer, absolute arrogance of sin. Because Satan, at the height of it, is arrogance. I will be like the Most High. Now, how can he really believe that? You know, the, the creator-creature distinction cuts that off immediately. Creature can't be like the Creator, but in, in some ways, Satan actually is stunningly brilliant, knows so much more than we know, has such a grasp of history, probably knows the plan of God better than we do. And with all that defies it now thinking about this very question as you circulate this in your heart think about it this is an example of what sin looks like in the extreme and it gives you an inkling into our own flesh and our own sin because whenever we sin and we, we entertain sinful thoughts utter words deeds that's what we're doing, in the sense that, yeah, well, we know God is there, but yet we insist on acting like little gods or goddesses, and we're going to have our way, and we think we can get away with it without the consequences that His laws impose. So it's a neat picture of arrogance. But I think the second thing is a higher purpose was being accomplished in this. You know, I was, I've never played chess, but I, I just use the imagery of it. Um, God is the supreme chess player. And whenever somebody makes a move, it's like they play into his traps. And they wind up accomplishing exactly what he wanted them to do. And in Satan's case, by having him go after Jesus, God had him sanctifying his Son. Satan became the tool that was needful in order to m- increase the determination, the obedience, and the loyalty of Jesus Christ. So he's perfectly confident. And at the, at the height of the arrogance is the cross. I will kill him, said Satan. Fine. You just undid the whole. You had a legal hole in the human race. Now by that stupid thing you went ahead and you unraveled your legal claim over the whole human race. And that's what I'm praying for in this latest application and this latest thing with uh, all the terrorist idiots running around. Um, The thing to to pray about um, besides the fact that the authorities can do the job wisely is to pray that foolishness fools itself. In other words, that, that evil has a flaw in it, always, no matter how vicious and how powerful evil appears to be. It's one Achilles heel. It always outdoes itself. And the cross is the good, key example. And you can do the same thing with, um, I mean, I, I think, frankly, just as an application here to our own society, social position, of all the dumb things to send an anthrax letter to the head of the opposition political party. Now, wasn't that stupid? I mean, send it to a Republican when you have a Republican president, but for crying out loud, you don't send an anthrax letter to the head of the Democratic Party and unify them. Duh! So that's the stuff to pray about pray that there'd be some foolish thing like the guy, the terrorist that was captured in Minneapolis why? because he applied to fly a plane, not land it duh and that's the stupid things and pray that the stupidity of evil will just trip itself up And the precedent is cosmic. It's not just planet Earth here. We're praying a prayer that has a structure that reflects cosmic history. Because that's exactly what Satan did. He always overdoes it. He pushes up to a point, and if he just stopped there, he'd have us. But he always overdoes it. You've seen this in in people's lives. He'll cream somebody. But he creams them so bad, they become more reliant on God and what's happened? He overdid the test. What he should have done is back off. Just test him enough to distract them. But no, he has to keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it until the person says, oh, gee, I better trust the Lord in this. So, that's part of this that coupling. So I don't think that, he, that the fact that Christ is not able to sin, uh, I guess you'd have to answer that, Satan, I guess, when it comes back down to it, doesn't really believe that. Or he wouldn't have been trying. <coughs> Mike? that he was fairly tempted and uh, whatever we say however we phrase whatever doctrine is we have to allow that because that's so clear in scripture Um, the problem that theologians have had is whether what was going on how do we reconcile temptation and his deity that's really what the question is here And it's it's really a mystery to get your hands on this thing, uh, you know. But the point is that if in those two statements you have, able not to sin and not able to sin, I think if you look at the notes when I went through this, I tried to, at the end of the discussion, tried to point out to the fact that the way to avoid thinking this is a, quote, logical paradox that can't be ever, that there's no rational explanation for it, is to think of the verb able in the first statement and the second is slightly different. The first one, able, is referring able in the sense as a man, human being. The second able brings in his deity. Now you've crossed the created creature distinction between the two uses of the verb able. So I'm not sure that when the theologians set up that, it was in Latin, posi non-procari, cari, you know. when they set that up, I mean, it was cute to set it up that way, but upon more mature reflection, we'd have to say that maybe it was too cute, because maybe what it's doing, it's hiding an important difference in the meaning of the verb, uh, a nuance. Yes. 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 Yeah, that, that, that's something to keep in mind, that both of those statements are directed to one of the two natures. They're, they're resulting because one of the two natures, like you said, uh, Mike, that uh, um, the able not to sin has in its purview the true humanity. The not able to sin is trying to come to grip that this true humanity is united in one person the deity.
1: that the of being Yes. Yeah.
0: And this gets into, I started deliberately tonight's lesson with the facetious statement that you hear said in some denominations that we have no creed but Jesus. Now you see how fallacious that is. When you start talking about questions like we've been talking about tonight, baby, you get deep into theology and you better know who Jesus is because we're struggling here right now with a hypostatic union to explain this stuff. So it's not that you can have any, the Jesus of, the, of your imagination. The problem is that I believe in this survey that I that was taken by Barna, whatever the guy is, that, that evangelical Barna survey or something, uh, he was shocked when he surveyed students in Christian schools who thought that Jesus was God in a body. Well, he's God in a soul and a body he had all humanity it wasn't like God walked around in a Jesus Yeah, it was more than that and so your point is legitimate that there has to be more than a body here, there has to be a whole person here, a whole human being here, because it doesn't fit together otherwise and that's why Jesus could be tired And that's why Jesus could be hungry. That's why Jesus could sweat blood in Gethsemane under pressure. Uh, That's why Jesus uh, could cry. I mean, think about it. The God on earth stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus and he cries. And Francis Schaeffer had a great comment on this. He says, and Jesus could stand outside of Lazarus' grave and he could cry and not be mad at himself. Meaning, allowing this evil to happen. Uh, now, you put all those thoughts together. You see, the, the, the guts of this whole thing is that it, 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 it surfaces in Paul's... Uh, Philippians 2 insistence on using Jesus as a model because if he's like as you say Mike if he doesn't have true humanity he's not a model sorry God can't be a model for man just in his deity I mean he's a standard but as far as being a model for hey I did it oh yeah you did it because you're God I'm not God So, you get around that only by defending rigorously the full, true humanity of Jesus. And I believe this is why the Holy Spirit bothered to write four Gospels, uh, so that we would see enough of his humanity to realize, yeah, he was humanity. I mean, you know, Mary had to raise this little baby. She had to change him. I mean, here's this, this, this is the God of the universe that Stephen Alford was fond of saying, contracting down to the size of a woman's womb. What a, what a thought that God can do that. How did he pull that one off? So, so the, 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 but the thing to remember for us as we go into the New Testament is that Jesus died. It's comforting, but in another sense, it's disturbing. It's comforting, it's comforting because, because Jesus did it, and he, and he authenticated that a human being can do this, much to Satan's disappointment that a member of the human race now sits there instead of him. So the original design intent of creating the human race is authenticated and validated because a man from the human race made it but on the other hand it's kind of disconcerting because we can't um, give excuses to him whereas you know you could kind of visualize you could give an excuse to the father because he never he doesn't know what it means to be tired you don't you know God you're omnipotent you know you don't know what it means to be tired you never were tired I was tired when I did that and Jesus said I was tired too and I didn't do that Go there Yes Laura
1: that the two he made himself, Yes
0: Yeah. Yes. And, and that's why, in that passage that you just cited, if you'll ever get the people that knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you ought to see what they do with that verse. They cite stuff like that to, quote, correct the Greek. And what they wind up doing is wiping out that, that conundrum of mystery in that passage by just plowing right on through it and saying, well, geez, see? See, he, he emptied himself. He's not full God. See, the, the, what all oldest witnesses do is they have to make him something other than God. And so they make him Michael, the archangel. And uh, that passage is now a passage where he was a high angel and he made himself lower because they don't want to wrestle with what you're talking about to create a creature problem. No
1: the temptation for Jesus was it was maybe the temptation more for him to take back what like he took off as far as like um, like the humble himself like and not taking on the like what he submitted to God as far as using his his powers, his deity was that maybe more of the temptation for him to like people the same? not that he would that he
0: would bow down the saints or worship Satan, but that he would use his deity in a way to okay um, every, everybody understand what Debbie's bringing up here good question that involved in the temptation uh, in one sense it's like our temptation temptation hunger it was a temptation to pride uh, it was a temptation to get the shortcut done but then as Debbie points out there's another little subtlety here because the other temptation would forever disqualify him because he would have been cheated so to speak he would have you quickly brought up his omnipotence to blast Satan out of here kid boom You know, I mean you could have blown him away right there but he didn't. So, yes, there was a temptation there. And I think maybe that is why Brooks Foss Westcott, back in the 19th century, noted that it's only a sinless person that can experience temptation high. I think that this probably was part of it, that that temptation was loaded. We, we see part of it. But if we could have seen all this, what we've been talking about in all of its depth, who is in Holy America, wow what a conflict that one was so you're right and that's, that's good insight into thinking more deeply about that text that was, a, that was a powerful confrontation that happened there lots of stuff going on okay well none of us are omnipotent and everybody looks tired so we're going to end right here <laughs>